0: Good morning, everybody. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, you are a great and mighty God and we worship you. We pray now as we turn our attention to your word that you would continue to shape us, to shape our thinking, to shape our actions, to mold our affections to you and to the things of you. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the core ideas of the Christian faith is belief. And belief is sort of a curious thing, isn't it, to consider. What do you believe in? And what does it mean to believe in something? Do you believe that Ohio State could win the national championship? How about the Pittsburgh Steelers in the NFL? Do you believe in them? Do you believe in Santa Claus? I mean, after all, the idea of belief is illustrated, and the different types of belief are illustrated very well during the Christmas season, how that relates to Santa or Jesus in a cultural sense, or as I had a conversation with our five-year-old this last week, She asked me about Jack Frost. Is Jack Frost real? And after a slightly nuanced philosophical conversation on a five year old level about how we use language and personification to describe the seasons of the year and winter, and Jack Frost nipping at your nose isn't actually a person, but it's just the sensation of cold that winter brings, she confidently and boldly stated, I believe. I believe in Jack Frost. There's different types of belief, aren't there? It's one thing to say I believe in something by acknowledging it to be true. It's another thing to believe in something by trusting in it for a lasting effect. And there are degrees of belief. I believe timidly. My belief might be fragile or I believe in an unwavering, confident sense. And all of the spectrum in between. And so as we turn our attention to the Gospel of John, and we think about how the idea of belief relates to the person of Jesus, we are reminded that the mission of Jesus is stated very clearly in this Gospel. And the reason why the Gospel of John is written, so that you might believe, That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in His name. And today we encounter a story that illustrates two different types of belief. Did you know that Jesus cares about not just that you believe, but how you believe? We see that in John chapter 4. So turn with me to John chapter 4, verse 43 through 54. John chapter 4, starting at verse 43, is found on page 889 of that pew Bible in front of you, and this is what it says. After the two days, that is the two days in Samaria, Jesus departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come to Judea, From Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And so Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed. Word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, the servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. And so he asked them the hour that he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So we see Jesus is on the move. If you remember, a couple weeks ago, we saw in John, the first part of John chapter 4, that Jesus had spent some time in Samaria with the Samaritan half-breeds who were also had false beliefs about God, and he revealed himself to them as the Savior, so much so that many of them came to genuine faith. This was in sharp contrast to what was happening with the Jews. He was with the Jews, they didn't believe, he went to the Samaritans, they did believe, and now he's coming back to his hometown. And it says in this transition sentence, or sentences in verses 43 to 45, something that's worth taking a, a brief look at. It says that he departed from Samaria to go back to Galilee, and then there's this interesting phrase. Verse 44 and 45, For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Now that's a little bit confusing. Jesus leaves from a Samaria To go back home because a prophet is not welcome in his hometown. And then they welcome him. Did you catch that? It's a little bit weird. Prophets aren't welcome at home, so I'm going to go back home. (laughs) And then they welcome him. Let's figure out what's going on here. Either Jesus is making a point that he's not a prophet, and therefore the people in his hometown do welcome him. But I don't think that's the case. I mean, after all, we know that Jesus, in fact, fulfills the role of a prophet in many ways, including the fact that he is the mouthpiece for God to the people, just like the prophets. And he is the mouthpiece for God to the people because he is God, (laughs) And you might remember in the earlier part of John chapter 4, Jesus is dealing with the woman at the well and he's revealing to her that he knows all of her past and she says, sir, I perceive you to be a prophet. So Jesus, I don't think, is making that point. Another option could be that the people perceive Jesus to be even less than a prophet. And so they welcome him. I think we're getting closer to what's going on here. But a third option is similar to the second. And it's connected to the second. And it's this. The Jews in Jesus' hometown didn't know what to think about this Jesus. And they welcomed him for one reason. And then they would curse him for the next reason. And two clues indicate this. Firstly... Jesus intentionally went to the place where he knew he wouldn't be welcomed. There's a very specific word in verse 44. It's a small word at the beginning of the sentence, for. (laughs) For Jesus prophesied that he wouldn't be welcomed. Or Jesus went home because he knew he wouldn't be welcomed. And this reveals his mission. Jesus' mission was ultimately to die. (laughs) And going back home, even early in John, indicates his awareness to this mission. But secondly, Jesus received a type of welcome that was superficial and short-lived. It says in verse 45, they welcomed him having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem At the feast, for they had gone to the feast. They welcomed Jesus because he was a miracle worker. (laughs) It's not that hard to believe, is it? How does a community respond when one of their own makes it big time and then comes back home? (laughs) What does a community do when LeBron returns to Akron? Or when Dave Grohl from Foo Fighters, an internationally known rock band, comes back to Warren, Ohio. Or any number of famous people who made it big. What do they do? They welcome him with great acclaim. And so they gather. This guy is the miracle worker. He heals people. He casts out demons. Someone even told me that he turned water into wine. Maybe he'll come to our next party. And you know what? He's one of us. He's from here. We're kind of like him. And he's kind of like us. We share the same roots. You know what it's like. We all have a sense of importance by being close to someone who's important. We all have a sense of a little bit more significance when we are in proximity to someone who is really, really influential. These people were fans. They were fans of the guy who could do miracles. Fans of the hometown boy. He was looking good as he was starting to make it big. They believed in Jesus as a miracle worker. And just then, we see in verse 46 and 47 that as he enters the area, an official meets him. And this is a man of great power who has great need. A man from the area found out that Jesus was there. The fans were gathering, but this guy wasn't just a fan. This guy was desperate. His son was severely ill. And all parents know what it's like when your child is desperately ill and you feel helpless to make it better, and particularly if they're on the verge You would do anything you could do to alleviate their pain. You would do anything that you could do to save their life in that moment. You can only imagine what this man had done to help his child already. Verse 47 tells us that he was an official. And the word for official has the same derivative word as the king. There's an indication here that this man is in the king's court is a man of great importance, a man of great power, and there's only one king in the area, and that sort of fuels the irony. This is King Herod Antipas. Maybe this man was an advisor. Maybe he was a prince. It doesn't really say. It only says that he was in the service of the king. And as a servant of the king, you might imagine that he had the best doctors at his disposal. He had access to the modern medicine of his time. He potentially had wealth and resources. He wasn't just going to go to the local ER or to the Minute Clinic to try to get this thing figured out. He was taking the boy to UPMC or to the Cleveland Clinic, and he wasn't leaving until they solved the problem. He was a powerful man. But his power could not meet his most pressing need. And so in desperation, he goes to Jesus. Don't miss the flow of what's happening here in John. John chapter 3, a powerful man. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and asks him about being born again. He doesn't see his need to be born again, but he's curious about what's happening, and he walks away. And he doesn't believe. John chapter 4, there's a woman at the well who Jesus reveals her need to her, and she embraces this need. She's lowly in stature. She has many failed marriages, and after trying to run away from the needs that she has, she ultimately is confronted with them and the one who can meet her greatest need, and so she believes. And now we have another powerful man. But this powerful man is different than the first because he sees his need. (laughs) It's ever before him this boy is going to die. And he knows that all the power and authority that he has isn't enough to meet this need. He knows that the king that he serves can't meet this need. And so without even knowing it, he goes to a different king (laughs) in an attempt to have this need met. He calls upon King Jesus. Some of you are incredibly competent people. You have skills and abilities and intellect. Many of you are able to see many things and do even more things. But there is a point in everybody's life actually multiple points in your life, when despite your skill or ability or power, there is a need that is even greater than our power, a need that you cannot meet. And there's no place more important that this need is made evident than life and death and eternal life and eternal Death. And that's what this passage points us to. It points us to the greatest need that we'll ever have true life, lasting life, everlasting life. And Jesus came to give just that. But here's the thing admitting the need, admitting the need, recognizing our helplessness to meet the need. That is what sets this official apart from all the other powerful people that you've seen in the Gospel of John to this point. This guy sees and knows and feels and desperately understands the need and his inability to meet it. And so what we begin to see now is two different types of belief. The belief of the Galileans is different than the belief of the grieving father. There's two different types of belief. And Jesus very clearly is going to show that he cares not just that you believe, but what you believe or how you believe. In the midst of the father's plea, Jesus takes a moment to offer a rebuke. Look at it with me in verse 48. The father comes, please come down. My son's at the point of death. And Jesus says to him... Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Wow. (laughs) That sounds pretty cold hearted considering the situation. (laughs) I'm desperate, I'm crying my eyes out, my boy is dying, and Jesus comes in with the haymaker. You're just looking for another sign. Is he really that cold hearted? This guy's hanging on to his last sliver of hope. He didn't know that much about Jesus. He's just trying to have his boy healed. He'd heard that the miracle worker is in town, and this is Jesus' response. But in fact, the rebuke that Jesus gives is not just to the man. (laughs) It might not even be to the man at all. It's actually to all the people in his hearing. It's lost a little bit on us in our English translation. But if you look at at it with me again in verse 48. The you, the pronoun you in verse 48 that's used twice is plural. The guy says to him, please come. And Jesus says, you all only want to see signs. Please come. It's not I'm talking to you individually. Now I'm going to talk to all the fans of the miracle worker who are waiting to see what is going to happen. He's rebuking the type of sign seekers, fans of the miracle workers, the people who have belief in Jesus based only on what Jesus does, but not on who Jesus is. They want Jesus the miracle worker. Not Jesus the Messiah. And that's the belief of the Galileans. But Jesus has already talked about what he thinks about this type of belief. John chapter 2, a couple chapters ago, in verses 23 through 25, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. One type of belief is the belief in the miracle worker who can do things for me. (laughs) You know that type of belief. This is the type of belief that's not equal to trust This isn't abiding faith. This is the acknowledgement that Jesus is something special, something unique, maybe even something more powerful than others. But it's only important insofar as it accomplishes something for me when I call upon it. That's why we make these backroom quid pro quo deals with God. God, if you do this, then I'll do that. Because Jesus is a miracle worker. You know, children illustrate this very well, and I'm conscious of the fact that when I use my children in illustrations, that I have a limited number of days left to do so before they start to feel embarrassment in front of all of you. But those days aren't upon us yet. And so, just this last week, you know, children are incredible at illustrating practical and spiritual principles in their own life as they're processing their reality and learning and growing. And so, as such, Uh, A couple, just in the last week or two, uh, our six-year-old daughter and our five-year-old daughter were starting to argue with each other, and the five-year-old is very good at pushing the buttons of the six-year-old, and the six-year-old is the firebrand, and so Noel, our five-year-old, locks herself in one of the bedrooms and locks the door so Alexa can't get in. Alexa is banging at the door, and she says, you open this door up right now, Noel, in the name of the Lord! And right there, Amy goes flying up the stairs as fast as she can for mommy lecture mode about taking the name of the Lord in vain. (laughs) And so Alexa thinks about that for a moment, and she grunts, and she's angry, but she understands, and so she says, You open this door up right now, Noel, in the name of Satan! (laughs) Our kids are screwed up. (laughs) But at least they think about life in theological categories. (laughs) What does it illustrate? It illustrates that this six-year-old girl calls upon the name of the miracle worker to get what she wants in the moment without any other care in the world for what he is or who he is or what it might mean. And we all do that from time to time. But that is not the type of belief that Jesus honors. It's acknowledgement, but it's not trust. It's a recognition of power, but it's not saving in its effect. Another way to describe this type of belief is in what we see with those pushing a very theologically liberal agenda in our day they question or they gut Jesus of his words and his divine authority one illustration of this many of you know the name Christopher Hitchens Christopher Hitchens was a well known atheist and part of the movement called New Atheism throughout the 1990s and 2000s he's Most recognized for his book that he wrote in 2007 called God is Not Great, with the subtitle Why Religion Poisons Everything. And during one of his speaking tours on a trip to Portland, Oregon, uh, in 2000, I think it was 2007 or 2008, uh, Hitchens was touring the country between 2007 and 2011 when he died on a speaking tour, debating many different religious leaders, including some well known evangelical thinkers. And in Portland, he was interviewed by a Unitarian minister named Marilyn Sewell. And ironically, Hitchens' answers to her questions were some of the best theology that this woman was confronted with. The entire transcript is online. And the following exchange took place near the very start of the interview. Marilyn Sewell asked him, or said to him, "'The religion you cite in your book is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. "'I'm a liberal Christian, and I don't take the stories from the Scriptures literally. "'I don't believe in the doctrine of the atonement, that is, that Jesus died for our sins, for example.' do you make any distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? To which Hitchens replied, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and the Messiah and that he rose again from the dead and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're not really in any meaningful sense a Christian. Sewell wanted no part of that conversation. And so she immediately said, Let's go someplace else. But the little snippet demonstrates an important idea about religious God talk. You can call yourself anything you like, but if you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for sins and rose again from the dead, then you're not in any meaningful sense a Christian. It's one of the most delicious ironies of the interaction. The outspoken atheist grasps one of the central tenets of the Christian faith better than this woman who claims to be a Christian actually does. What you believe about Jesus really does make a difference. The second type of belief that we see in this passage is belief in who Jesus is (laughs) while recognizing our own need. Look what happens. Jesus rebukes the crowd. And in verse 49, the official immediately responds to his rebuke. And he says to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And in verse 50, after Jesus proclaims his healing, Jesus says, your son will live, and it says, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. Simple belief. (laughs) And at least a level of trust that moves this person to action. And we're going to see a progression here, that believing the word of Jesus shows you the person of Jesus, which results in the benefits of Jesus. (laughs) When you believe his word, you begin to see and understand and know him as a person. And when you know who he is, you begin to receive his benefits. And the story concludes with Jesus displaying his authority and the official displaying his genuine faith. Jesus rebukes the crowd, the man interrupts, he's desperate. Jesus doesn't oblige his request to come down and to heal his son. He doesn't go. (laughs) Instead, he sends the man on his way, proclaiming that the healing has been done. And notice something, two things really. Number one, the man doesn't insist. It's really interesting to me that Jesus says, no, I'm not coming, just go. And the man doesn't say, no, 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 come. (laughs) But he doesn't. And it's also really interesting that Jesus doesn't perform the miracle in the view of all of the fans of the miracle worker. That That the miracle happens a day away in another place where none of them can see it. Those with the errant belief don't get the benefit. (laughs) And don't let the power of this miracle escape you. What Jesus did right there is something that only God can do. To say the words and it's done. To have authority over physical body in such a way that not even a touch is needed for the illness to be eradicated. To have the vision and authority and insight over a realm of time and space and geography so much so that he knows where the boy is, he directs his healing power in that direction into the exact cells of his body to the point where the boy is made well, only God can do that. And Jesus does it. The man goes on his way. He doesn't make it home that night. It says that he arrives the next day. And as he arrives, he's greeted and told that his son was recovering. And he immediately asks the question that you would ask and I would ask, when did it start to happen? at the seventh hour, that's 1 p.m. And he knew exactly that that was the time that he was having the conversation with Jesus. And his response, verses 52 and 53, look at it with me. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed. And all of his household It mentioned that he believed already. He believed Jesus' word and he went on his way. And now it says he believed again. Maybe it was a two-part conversion. Or perhaps an enhancing of his belief. He believed that Jesus was able to meet the need of his son. He believed his word and as he believed his word, he began to see the person. And as he experienced the person of Jesus, he experienced the benefit. Believing the word of Jesus shows us the person of Jesus, which leads to the benefits of Jesus. And we see this incredible and valuable principle. Jesus cares about how you believe, not just that you believe, but what and how. Point to whether or not your belief is genuine. It's not enough to recognize him like so many people do at Christmas. It's not enough to say this is a great holiday about a man who once lived, who was a good moral teacher. What and how you believe to trust him as the son of God and what he does in giving us new life through the forgiveness of our sins as we close, I want to ask you to consider the nature of belief and ask yourself how you believe. Don Carson gives us a great little anecdote to help us. This is what he writes. He says, imagine with me the first Passover. The first Passover just before the Exodus. Mr. Smith and Mr. Jones, two Hebrews with remarkable last names, are discussing the extraordinary events of the previous weeks and months. And Mr. Smith asks Mr. Jones, have you sprinkled the blood of the lamb on the two doorposts and on the lintel over the entrance of your dwelling? Of course I have, replies Mr. Jones. I followed Moses' instructions exactly. So have I, affirms Mr. Smith. But I have to admit, I'm very nervous. My boy Charlie means the world to me. And if, as Moses says, that the angel of death is coming this very night and passing through the land, taking out all the firstborn of the land, I just don't know what I'd do if Charlie died. But that's the point. He won't die. (laughs) That's why you sprinkled the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and on the lintel. Moses said that if the angel of death sees the blood, he will pass over the house that's so protected and the firstborn of the home would be safe. So why are you worried? I know, I know, I know, sputters Mr. Smith somewhat irritably, but you have to admit there has been some very strange things going on these last couple months. Some plagues that have afflicted the Egyptians and of course some of them have hit us too. The thought that my Charlie might... In danger is terribly, terribly upsetting to me. Rather unsympathetically, Mr. Jones replies, I really can't imagine why you're fretting. After all, I have a son too, and I love my boy just as much as you love your boy, but I'm completely at peace. God promised that the angel of death would pass over any house in which the blood was painted on the door frames and on the lintel over the entrance and I take him at his word. That night, the angel of death passed through the land. Who lost his son? Mr. Smith or Mr. Jones? And the answer, of course, is neither. The fulfillment of God's promise that the angel of death would simply pass over and not destroy the firstborn depended not on the intensity of their faith, but on whether or not they had sprinkled the blood on the doorpost and on the lintel. And in both cases, the blood was shed, the houses were marked, and in both cases, the firstborn was saved. And so it is with everyone who's trusted Jesus and his person and his work on our behalf. The promise of deliverance the assurance that we are accepted by the Almighty God is not tied to the intensity of your faith or the consistency of our faith or the purity of our faith, but it's tied to the object of our faith. When we approach God in prayer, our plea is not that we've been good that day or that we've just come from a great church service full of praise And so we try harder. But the object of our faith is the person of Jesus Christ, God's son, who died for us. And against that plea, Satan has no repose. Truth of the matter is that the cross marks Satan's defeat, and Satan knows it. And so the call is to believe, and by believing, to have life. Believing in the word of Jesus... Shows us the person of Jesus. So we experience the benefits of Jesus. Friends, that's what we proclaim as we take the Lord's Supper now. We proclaim, God, your word is true. We trust in this person of your son who forgives us of our sins. And so as we pray, I'll ask our ushers to come forward. And we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Please pray with me. God in heaven, we thank you that your son Jesus is more than a miracle worker. We thank you that he is greater than one who simply performs powerful deeds. But that in the core of his being, he is God. And as the eternal son... Sees all and knows all and can accomplish our greatest need. Help us to see our need ever more clearly and to trust in him ever more faithfully. Help us to truly believe.